following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and the gift that is the privilege to worship and study together and to gather in unity with the saints here in Fredericksburg. We pray that our minds and hearts, attentions and affections would be focused on you and your word and treasuring Christ. Lord, we have all come here from a week full of distress and troubles, of sin and neglect, of disappointments and failures. And we've contributed to that mess and we have lived in that mess and we are keenly aware of our of our plight and our condition. And so I pray, God, that the study of your word this morning would be a, a balm and an encouragement to your people and a warning and a challenge to those who have yet to be saved by grace, those who have yet to trust you completely with their heart and their life, that they would see the beauty and the majesty of Christ above all, as it's displayed through the, the teaching in the life of Paul, your servant, and to the church. We pray, God, that you would uh, you teach us by your Spirit and illuminate our minds and then make soft our ears and our hearts to obey and to heed what it is you would have us to know. Lord, we love you and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul's writing to the churches of Galatia, which is a larger province in which several bodies are meeting. And in this province, issues have arised where certain ne'er-do-wells, certain opponents of Paul and opponents of the gospel have gained influence within the church and began teaching a false gospel. Last week we saw that there are, there are ways that men and women can infiltrate the church gain influence and agitate the body by subtly infusing the church with small but inaccurate doctrines. So Paul is writing to commend the true gospel to the Christians of Galatia to remind them that he gave them the gospel by which they were saved and had first come to a, a saving knowledge of Christ. And yet he has heard report that they have abandoned that gospel. They are turning away from that gospel to a different one. Not that there is one, he says, but some have sought to replace the true gospel with a false one and so lead others to hell. And Paul says this, must not be the case. You need to recover the true gospel of Jesus as he had taught it to them. Now, part of the objection to Paul and his gospel is that Paul is not worthy to be a preacher of the gospel, his opponents say. That he doesn't have the bona fides, the credentials to be preaching, not like Peter or James or John, those disciples of Christ, the brother of Christ, those in Jerusalem. That's where the epicenter of Christianity really is. And so Paul here is a rogue apostle. 
if he can even be called that at all. And so they're critiquing and undermining his authority as an apostle by saying not only does he not have the approval of the Jerusalem church, but he hasn't even really given the approval of Christ. Well, far from allowing the gospel to be trampled underfoot by heretics, he cares not so much for his own reputation but for the gospel, and so he embarks on a defense of not only his own credentials, but more, more importantly, of the gospel itself. And so notice what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says that if we, or an angel, that is, if apostles or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. A strong statement of judgment to incur the wrath of God. Again, he says, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received through me preaching to you, let him be accursed. And then he says in verse 11, our text, For I'd have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith. He once tried to destroy it. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In essence, what we have here in the first chapter of Galatians is Paul's answer to the question, who done it? You ever play the game Clue before? Or some other mystery? Maybe you're one of the cool people that have been invited to a mystery dinner party where you had to try to figure out who was the culprit. I've never played such a game, but I'm familiar with the idea that there is somebody who is holding a secret. They've committed a crime, they've murdered, and it was this person in that room with that blunt instrument. And the goal of the game is to determine who it was by a series of clues. And in such a course of an event, false accusations are flying, people are accused of something they didn't do, and they have to defend themselves with the information they have. Meanwhile, the person who truly has done it is trying not to be told, or caught, or accused. But here Paul wants to make something very clear. 
that it was not his own doing. It was not the apostles' doing. It was not even the churches in Jerusalem's doing. It was not even the Pharisees' doing. But it was God's doing alone that gave and revealed the gospel as he has taught it and teaches it. He wants to make very clear that no man has claim to the origin of the gospel. No man has right claim to say, this came from me, that I made it up. I've come up with this idea to save people. I've discovered the truth secretly, hidden in obscure passages of the law. And therefore, you should listen to me on the basis of my intellect and cleverness. Paul's answer to whose gospel do you preach? It is God's. He does this by giving an account of his own conversion and calling. The point of this sermon and of the text this morning is this, that the gospel is the sole product and invention of God. It's a funny way to say it, but I think it's true. The gospel is the sole product and invention of God, not man. In a perusal of chapter 1, you'll see a theme quickly emerge. That is a theme between a divinely originating gospel and a man-originating gospel. And the two are pitted against one another. Man versus God. Man's gospel, man's way, man's work versus God's truth and provision of mercy upon which you will not receive salvation if you trust in works. The gospel, Paul says, is the sole product and invention of God. And he has the truth that he has given to Paul. And Paul, in his faithfulness to his commission as a prophet and an apostle, gives that gospel to the Galatians. And so any gospel that runs contrary to it, any group of people or persons that add to it, no longer just undermine Paul's authority, but are running contrary to God himself. So it is God's word, God's gospel. It is his proclamation of the way men are saved. If you are sinful, Paul says, it is not enough to work yourself into God's favor. You cannot obey the law perfectly enough to grant salvation and to earn righteousness. Your best works on your best day among the best people are failures before a righteous, perfect, and holy God. Now apart from Christ and His gospel of His death and resurrection, there is no hope of salvation. And the Galatians must remember this and hold fast to it if they are to see themselves through to the end, if they are to to walk faithfully in light of God's teachings, in light of the commandments of Christ, if they are to be held fast by this truth, they must not stray from it. So Paul's basic argument is that the gospel that he preached to the Galatians, which is now being distorted by the Pharisees and the legalists, and that they received from him, as he mentions in verses 8 through 9, is not and has never been of human origin. The source of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not man. It was not manufactured by man or fabricated by man. 
However ingenious and clever he may have been, it has not been stitched together from a series of other religious or Gnostic sources as opponents to the gospel even today maintain and claim. The gospel was revealed to Paul directly by Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel has a divine origin. That is Paul's intent. Friends, this alone must be the basis for the Galatians' fidelity and ours to the gospel. The fact that none of us could have ever put our minds together and come up with something so magnificent as the gospel of Jesus Christ as is written in Paul's letters in the New Testament and revealed and promised all throughout Scripture, we would never have come close, should remind us that because the source of the gospel is divine and not human, from heaven and not from earth, that we must be faithful to it no matter what. The temptation, right, is that there will be other allurements to draw us off the path. There are many things that teach us that we can earn our salvation. Many prophets of the world, even religious teachers who don the title Christian, pastor, bishop, pope, cannot lead you to salvation if they're preaching a gospel in which works is a necessity. The gospel in its divine origin is the basis or the foundation of our fidelity to God. The moment we begin to take credit for or give credit to man for the gospel is the moment it becomes weak and can no longer hold us faithful to the end. The danger may not appear at first light. It may not even happen in the first beginnings of the entertaining of such an idea, but slowly but surely, down the line, the corruption and the distortion of the gospel that says you can earn and can maintain and can perfect and add to and invent on the gospel will lead you to hell, as Paul warns the Galatians. This is the destination of those false teachers. Let them be accursed, he says, an anathema, the judgment and wrath upon them if they teach a gospel and upon us if we believe such a gospel. So what is the faith, the basis for our fidelity and faithfulness to God? It is the divine origin of the gospel. And then as we move on in verses 13, all the way really through chapter 2, verse 14, is Paul's defense of the gospel in his ministry to give further credence and verification that this is of divine origin and not from him or the other apostles. The gospel has not even come from angels, but from God himself. Christ revealed it to Paul. Paul teaches and preaches it to the Galatians, and no other person can come against it. It's an explication of Paul's conversion and calling in order, for the Galatians' sake, to confirm that his gospel is indeed from Christ and not from man. All, of course, might have been familiar of Paul's own personal testimony, even recorded for us in the book of Acts, chapter 9. Paul, who was a zealous persecutor of the church, he says, I sought to destroy the church, literally to, to break it down, to wreak havoc among it, 
and he was on his way into Jerusalem, and he was scattering and persecuting those who are of Christian faith. Famously, we read of this individual, Saul, as he was then known, standing, watching, affirming the stoning death of Stephen. Following that persecution, the believers scattered throughout Judea and the area, and so Paul went on a mission approved by the Jerusalem Council and religious Pharisees at the moment to go and chase them, to arrest them, to destroy the faith. Remember, he saw this not as a new religion, but as a cancer and a growth on Judaism. That Christianity in its earliest form, even by the Christians themselves, saw this as a fulfillment and an extension of the promises of the Old Testament. And so they were using words like Messiah, Hebrew words about the promised servant of God. And to Paul and the other Pharisees' perspective, they were simply co-opting their religious terms to teach heresy, blasphemy even. And so no wonder a young, zealous Pharisee leader in the church would seek to destroy this before it gets any further. But little did he know, by opposing Christians, he was opposing Christ. Hence, on the way to Damascus from Jerusalem, he stopped, interrupted, fallen over by Christ's own presence, to which he says, why are you persecuting me? Notice that Jesus equates the persecution of the church with the persecution of his own body. I think this is why Paul stresses the unity of the, of the church as Christ's body so heavily in his letters. Paul recounts here for us in some fashion, with some more detail, exactly what he understood has happened on that road to Damascus when Christ saves him and calls him. He says, Many of you, in verse 13, have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Why does he recount this? So they would be keenly aware that those who know Paul the preacher of the gospel, that that was not always who he was. That he was the foremost persecutor of the church in his day. He led charges against Christians and sat idly by approvingly as they were put to death, stoned, beaten, imprisoned, and mocked. He led the campaign to arrest them. This was Saul of Tarsus, a rising star among the Pharisees, and yet they know him now as a preacher to the Gentiles. As we consider the divine origin of the gospel, I want to do two, three things, rather, that demonstrate the divine nature of the gospel. Because the gospel is not only divine in its origin, that it comes from God, but that it is divine in its nature. It is owing to God. And apart from God, it does not and cannot accomplish what it sets out is intended to do. And this is demonstrated in Paul's own ministry. 
So three things we see from Paul's ministry that display the divine nature of the gospel. Firstly, then, we see Paul was divinely transformed. When he speaks about his his zealousness for, for the faith, Judaism, for the legalism and the Pharisaicism that he followed in, so zealous was he for the traditions of the Father, a teacher, a student of the law itself, he intends for us to understand that he was radically transformed by the gospel. Because it's this Paul now who teaches that the gospel is not by works, something a Pharisee would never say. Though the words grace or mercy would certainly be used, it would always be in a means by which you are to obey the law for your righteousness, not in spite of it. So Paul says that he was divinely transformed, the first part of the divine nature of the gospel. This radical and surprising transformation of Paul's life and his ministry from a zealous persecutor of the church to a, to a preacher of the same message that he sought to stamp out and became even a persecuted Christian himself, he says, should, should serve as nothing more than a a miracle by God. What else could account for such a change in someone's life? Paul, who had everything to lose and nothing to gain by converting to Christianity. This is a clear demonstration of God's intervening grace. And it supports not only Paul's commitment to the cause of Christ, but his trustworthiness as a teacher to the church He commends his message, his gospel, because he he was a persecutor of the church. And only an intervention by God and Christ himself could convince him to switch teams. To lose his livelihood, his reputation, everything that he held dear, his whole life wasted. If indeed God counts such things. What else could account for such a change and transformation in Paul's life, except that he was and has encountered God. Friends, know that there is no greater witness to the veracity of the gospel and to the cause of Christ than the glorious transformation of your life as a Christian. You may be a good apologist and have the arguments down about why God exists or why we can believe the Bible or the transmission of Scripture over time, or the philosophical arguments that support theological doctrines, good, beautiful, great doctrines. But it is the transformation of your life as a disciple of Christ that speaks the loudest volumes to an unbelieving world. There is no greater witness to the veracity of the gospel, the power of the gospel to change hearts other than a witness of a changed life. Brothers and sisters, how has your life changed since you've become a Christian? How how has the affections and desires of your hearts turned away from sin and towards the things that God loves? How have you been encouraged as you examine the last 5, 10, 15 more years of your life, walking steadily, faithfully, but not perfectly, with Christ, trying to obey in the fellowship of the body, but making strides and saying, Well, five years ago, I wouldn't have believed this. I wouldn't have done that. I would have never stepped into church. I certainly would have had 
any Christian friends. May the examination and the reflection upon your life be an encouragement to you. But if you are feigning profession, if there's no real transformation in your life that you can confidently point to and say, look what the Lord has done, I know this to be the true work of God in my heart to have changed me in this way. And my life, though it doesn't earn me salvation, reveals that God has worked salvation in me. If there's nothing there that you can point to, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to seek out help. And what it might mean to grow, it may be that you simply have neglected your discipleship, even for years. Or indeed, it may be that you've never truly been converted at all. Even in a room this size, there may be one or two of us who believe ourselves to be a Christian because we've gone to church. We've prayed a prayer. We've even been baptized. We've even been a member of a church and have no real, true conversion. The reason I say this is twofold. One, because transformation comes only from a real encounter with Jesus. A real encounter with Jesus. A apart from encountering Christ, you're not transformed by the gospel. You may clean up your life. You may walk a little bit more in accordance with the people around you. You may even obey the direct commands of Scripture. But your life and your heart will not be transformed. Not on the deeper level that is necessary for pointing to truth and conviction in your heart. Notice what we read this morning from our, our New Testament reading. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. For the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. A real encounter with Jesus will produce a transforming effect of the sort and kind that you are, in God's eyes, new. Your old self dies and passes away. You are a new creature. Another word to use for it? Born again. It is the new birth Jesus speaks of to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In other words, you are saved. A real encounter with Jesus will lead to transformation. And by real, I mean meaningful. I mean the sort that Paul here describes. In verse 15, when he who had set me apart before I was born and was pleased, to, was called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult. This word reveal is apocalyptus. It's the same word that the book of Revelation is named after. It means an unveiling, an appearing. And what Paul's talking about here is not simply the physical appearing of Christ before his eyes. He alone saw Christ. The others did not. They simply heard. What he means is the kind of real appearing and encounter with Christ that cannot but leave a man changed. It is a bold transformation. And this alone accounts for why Paul has changed. This alone accounts for why Paul would count everything as trash compared to knowing Christ. This is why he alone would go and be beheaded for the sake of the gospel, despite having every advantage. 
So friends, considering that transformation only comes from a real encounter with Jesus, I wonder if you feel cold or distant to that Christ who has once, once transformed you. How does a, a cold heart, a distant heart, one who, whose fire and affection and, and zeal for the Lord that once burned like white-hot flame and passion now has seemed to cool? And you're wondering, am I still changed? Am I still being changed? Am I like Paul, who thought he was obeying God but really was in opposition? I want to encourage you, Christian, to look to Christ and to pray and cry out to Him that you might encounter His beauty and magnanimity once more. His generosity and love and glory poured out for you in the cross. Go deeper into His nature as the Son of God. Go deeper into His personages as the, as the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man. Go deeper into his teachings. Go deeper into his prayer and see the beauty and the glory and the generosity of that Christ who at one point in your life controlled your affections, whose heart controls yours. The only way to revive a cold or distant heart who's once been transformed by Christ is to go deeper in. But transformation only comes through a real encounter with Jesus. The second part to this is that transformation is also continual. This isn't a one-time thing. You're transformed by Christ and therefore good to go. Transformation is continual. Even the Galatians themselves need to be reminded to get back on track because they were led astray by a false gospel. Again, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18, and we all with unveiled faith, faith beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What is our help in the work of transformation that once begun in our conversion but continues now into our dying breath? It is the Spirit who is sent by God to aid us and to transform us from one degree of glory to another. We call this sanctification. We call this growing into the likeness and image of Christ, which he mentions here. So to be divinely transformed is to accept a gospel that is divine in its origin and to allow the real encounter with Christ, which, by the way, only the true gospel presents, to change you in such a deep and fundamental way that you are a new creature. It is not like many Hindus of, of other countries who will simply add Christ to their pantheon of other gods. It is not simply like the legalists, even in our own culture, who will simply follow Jesus as a great moral teacher and put their hope and trust in their own good works. It is a new creation with Christ above all. So Paul says that he's been divinely transformed to give credit to the divine origin of the gospel. Then he continues on in verses 17, or 15 through 17, and speaks of his divine calling. Not only has he been divinely transformed, but he's been divinely called. He says, it was when he who had set me apart before I was born, or literally from my mother's womb, who had called me by his grace, 
was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach to him, preach him among the Gentiles. Three components of this calling. Specifically, we have his electing grace. You see that Paul himself was chosen. He was set apart before he was born from his mother's womb. This echoes the prophet Jeremiah's own calling as he recorded what the Lord said to him in Jeremiah 1.5. God says to him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You can hear the echo of Paul's own self-understanding of God's calling him to preach to the Gentiles. Now Paul here is speaking of God's electing grace. This word that many Christians are afraid to use, but it's clear in Scripture of God's work of predestination and election. Whatever we may determine that means on a micro-theological level, we see here that it is God's choosing for no other reason but His own purposes to set men and women aside for His glory. In Paul's case, it was so that he would be saved and commissioned to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. There is a choosing of God, not according to work. God does not look down the corridor of time and determine that Paul would be a worthy choice, but chooses him upon the only condition that matters, God's free and sovereign choice. He loves Paul, and he loves him savingly. And so Paul can be said to have been set apart before he was born. And then Paul says that he was called. Not only does he speak of God's electing grace and God's choosing him, but he speaks of God's effectual grace in calling him. Now, by calling, we mean this in two ways. First, general. Secondly, effectual. The general calling of God goes like this. Someone preaches the gospel and someone hears it need not believe it, need not affirm it, need not be changed by it. But the general call goes out by the lips of the preacher, by the faithful servant of God, Christian, pastor alike. And is the gospel message proclaimed and extended to sinners indiscriminately, man, woman, child, of any nation, any race, any ethnicity, any age. The general call goes out as it does this morning to you to believe, to repent, to trust, to be converted by God's grace. What you do with this as you respond to it is not up to the speaker or the preacher, but up to God himself. And yet all of us hear this general calling, but hear Paul speaking more specifically of the effectual calling of God. He was pleased, he says, verse 16, to reveal his son to me in a saving way. Paul was certainly aware of the Christian faith and doctrine. He was a studious one. He knew how to engage and defeat those whom he went up against. He understood the doctrines and the teaching of Jesus and despised it. And yet when he was confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus, the calling which he had heard before in a general sense was made effectual. That is, the effectual calling is that particular application of the general call. To believe the gospel and follow Christ is made effectual, active. It accomplishes what it has set out to do. So Paul speaks not only of 
His electing grace, but of His effectual grace in calling Him. But not only has He been chosen and called, He's been commissioned. This is God's empowering grace. He says that I've been set apart for this purpose, to preach Christ among the Gentiles. This was His purpose in life. That's why God has saved Him. It's His mission, and that is why He's an apostle commissioned by Christ. And he's been empowered by the Spirit, just as all of us have to go and accomplish that mission, to live out faithfully that calling. He'll say elsewhere, Colossians chapter 1, verses 27-29, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So not only was Paul chosen by God before he was ever born, by God's electing grace, and then called by God effectually, according to his effectual grace, but commissioned by Christ himself according to his empowering grace to go and preach among the Gentiles the mystery of Christ revealed, the hope of glory. And he does this with all of the energy, he says, that God works powerfully within him. So by this, Paul means to demonstrate that the origin of the gospel also means that the gospel is one that includes a divine calling. It is not enough to say simply that when the gospel is believed, you are transformed, but that you are called to live in accordance with the word and the purposes of God. The gospel not only transforms you, but empowers you to live according to faithfulness and righteousness, not earned by yourself, but provided for you in Christ and lived out in faithfulness by the Spirit. Every Christian is called by God for his purposes. We can say that there is a a general and grand purpose for all of us to glorify God. But there are specific purposes of vocation that God calls each one of us uniquely. And for that, we must take time to examine and seek counsel for faithfulness. But again, Paul will say in in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 6, and even verse 10, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So he speaks not only of his own election, but of every Christian's election. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And in verse 10 there he says, chapter 2, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the purposes, friends, of your life as a Christian is to glorify God in the obedience and faithfulness of your calling, living out the good works God has prepared for you. He has chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is, before you've ever been born, from your mother's womb. He has predestined you in love for adoption that you might live in accordance to his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Every Christian is called by God for that purpose. 
In other words, there is no saving grace without God's electing, effectual, and empowering grace. These are taken together to speak of what Paul here is describing. Conversion. Salvation. Without God's electing, effectual, and empowering grace, there is no saving grace of which we may speak. And so Paul says of the divine nature of the gospel that he has been divinely transformed, divinely called, and lastly, that he is divinely supported. In the last several verses of our chapter, verses 18 to 24, Paul details a timeline of his own events, which offers, I think, a trustworthy and a historically accurate, even verifiable account of his own conversion and calling as apostle. This is why he, he labors to, to give these detailed accounts. And the point of this reconstruction is to show that he was not subordinate to Jerusalem. He's not answering only to Peter. He does not derive his calling from them, but from Christ himself. Notice that he says that I did not immediately, when I received the gospel and the commission, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles, verse 17, before me. But I went away to Arabia, and then I returned again to Damascus. He's never been to Jerusalem at this point. And then it says, verse 16, then after three years, that is three years from the Damascus Road experience, then I went to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas. And even then, I only went there to become more acquainted with him. That's what the word there translated visit. I wanted to become acquainted. I wanted to understand more about how God called him. So whatever in the three years he's done, in Damascus, we know that he preached in the synagogues but had to leave under fear of his own life. And in Arabia, certainly teaching and growing in knowledge, he eventually, three years later, comes to Jerusalem for the first time to visit and become acquainted with Cephas. And he says, I didn't see anybody else even except James. The, the point here is that he wasn't in in cahoots with the Jerusalem church. He, he's not trying to make sense of, of what he's teaching so that he can go and have a bigger, wider audience. The point is to show that he was never subordinate to the Jerusalem apostles, and therefore his gospel, having been directly given by Christ himself, was not derived from them, was not dependent upon their approval. He did not seek their counsel. He received neither his gospel nor his calling from them. So whatever role that they would have played in his ministry, it would not have been one of authority over him. That's his point here. That when I was saved, I didn't even see Paul, Peter, for three years. And when I went to Jerusalem to meet him, I didn't even hang out with the other apostles. In Acts, it tells us that the apostles didn't want to hang out with him. They still were skeptical about his conversion. Word eventually gets around that Paul indeed seems to have been chosen and converted. And Barnabas, the good friend that he is, introduces him to Peter and James and the others. So in this we see several things as Paul says that he has been divinely supported. First, that the Lord was directing and ordering Paul's steps. He was not taking orders from the other apostles in Jerusalem. It was the Lord who directed and ordered his steps. He had no command. He had no instruction. 
not even a suggestion by other Christian leaders to preach. He was commanded by Christ. He was led by the Spirit to the synagogues. He was led and driven out of Damascus into Arabia, and it was him who felt called by the Lord to return. He did not answer, not in an arrogant way, but because he understood his calling came from Christ. And who could usurp or challenge such a calling? Whose authority was greater than even Peter's? He records this in Acts chapter 22 as he speaks to the, those who are about to put him to death. He gives an account of his story again, really the second most detailed biography we have. He says, when I had returned to Jerusalem, that is from his time in Arabia, and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, make haste, that is Christ, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that I am, I, that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. That is, they, they should see my transformation. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching the garments of those who killed him. And Jesus said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And so who commissions Paul? Jesus and only Jesus. And so Christ divinely supports Paul in his ministry through the gospel and through his spirit. The second aspect we see of the divinely supported ministry of Paul is that the fruitfulness of Paul's effective ministry is clear. Notice what it says in verse 23. They, they were hearing it. They, they, they were not knowing Paul personally, but they were hearing of Paul's exploits. And they, they saw that he was converted. They were understanding that this must have been something real. And what happens? Verse 24, they glorified God because of me. They were afraid, unsure, skeptical. But when they saw the fruit of Paul's effective ministry, derived not from the apostles, but by Christ himself, Paul was the cause of their rejoicing. The fruitfulness of Paul's effective ministry is a sign that he was not subordinate to the other apostles, but was commissioned and called in his own right by Christ himself. And so in the divine nature of the gospel being divinely ordained and finding its source and origin in God himself, it is that the gospel will divinely transform and call and support those who believe it. So though following Jesus, friends, is always inextricably tied to our fellowship together, our mutual brotherhood with all of the saints together, each one of us must recognize Christ as our own utmost authority over our lives. Though each one of our salvations is indeed personal, it is never private. And yet we must recognize Christ is our personal Lord and Savior, as much as he is the head of the church. Do we tend to view Christ as one or the other? That our religion and our faith is a personal, private matter upon which I listen to no other man or woman in my life, wise or knowledgeable as they may be, because unless Christ tells me, I won't move. Or do we sin to follow just those around us, adopt whatever position the popular kids in school take, whatever position the latest book we've happened to read, or the blog, or God forbid, the YouTube video, 
we've watched. How easily are we to accept the false doctrines or the subtle errors of those around us because we do not listen to Christ? How easily are we strayed from our own path of personal calling and purpose because we have not put Christ chiefly above us? Yes, our salvation and our faith is personal, but it is not private. And so we are to be divinely supported by the unique and personal call of Christ on each one of us to whom we will give an account for our faithfulness. So Paul here has labored to show that he, he has preached a gospel not made with man's intentions. It is not an invention of, of any smart group of people or even of Paul himself. It has a divine origin. And in his own life, he demonstrates that it has a divine nature in which he is divinely transformed, called, and supported. Two exhortations to Christians, two exhortations to unbelievers. To the Christian, brothers and sisters, first delight in him who called you by his grace. Delight in him who has called you by his grace. This is what he says as he recounts his own testimony. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. He, he, he doesn't have time or space here to go on, as often Paul will, a doxological praise to God be glory forever and ever. Amen. But we know often that Paul would normally break into such praise. He would normally break into such, do, such doxology. And it is our obligation as well, as we recount what God has done for us, to delight in Him who has called us by grace. Even while we are tempted to be led astray, he says again in verse 6, I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ. Friends, Christians, if you've been called, you must delight in Him. Return often to Christ who has called you by His grace. That is how He looms large in your life. If you relegate Him or compartmentalize Him to your Sunday morning or to a Bible study or to a quiet time and then keep Him away from your day, He will be a small, compartmentalized Christ. He will be domesticated to you. You cannot go deeper into a Christ you can keep in your pocket. You have to go deeper and trust and delight in Him who called you by grace. Then, Christian, you must follow faithfully after him. Do not allow any false gospel to penetrate your thoughts. Be weary and be knowledgeable so that you may see, detect, and thwart any attempt to undo the work of Christ. There is much to be said about how to follow Christ. I, I pray that our study in the rest of Galatians will lead us to trust the gospel more faithfully and walk more diligently in light of the gospel but simply to follow Christ means to obey. It means to see, to hear, to obey. Not putting your strength in the steps you take, but trusting Christ who carries you along the way. That he who has divinely called you now divinely supports you. And he who has divinely transformed you has sent the Spirit to continue to do so. So Christian, delight in him and follow him but to the unbeliever who has not yet fully put their trust, faith in Christ, 
who is not now sure that they've ever been truly transformed by the kind of calling and transformation and powerful work that Paul here speaks of? Two exhortations to you first, simply to seek him who calls you. You hear now the general calling of God, as mentioned earlier. May it be the effectual calling this morning to hear and to receive savingly the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for your sins that you may be freed from the bondage of captivity that we all are under and we, we give power and spirit to walk faithfully now able to say yes to God and no to sin but before being captive to such things seek him who is now calling you if not generally I pray effectually Respond to the gospel with faith and trust as your second exhortation. Seek him who calls you even now by his grace and trust. Respond to him in faith and in trust. By this I mean to put your courage and your conviction in Christ. Be confident that he whose blood was shed for you on the cross has atoned and made right your soul before God. Because you are a sinner, you are an enemy of the Lord. But Christ's blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you place your faith, your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you who seek him will be found. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Paul says in Romans. Though there are none who seek after God, he says, Jesus says, all who seek me shall find me. So it is God who woos you and draws you now and is calling you, friend, to believe. The exhortation I leave you with is to respond in faith and trust. I don't want to presume to know exactly which camp you fall in. I trust many of you are Christians, and so the exhortation to delight and follow after Christ who has called you by His grace would be an encouragement. But it may be that you are here who has never truly responded to the call of Christ, who has never saw the gospel of His death and His resurrection as one who has saved you. Friend, I want you to pray and call upon the Lord now that you would be saved. Let's pray. Father, there is more I wish to say and to plead, but I trust this is enough for now. Thank you, God, for your grace to us as your children, and I pray, God, for those who would now hear savingly your calling of effectual grace. Say, I need that. I don't have it. I need it. God's called me and I, I, have to, I have to obey. Like Lazarus, I must come out of the grave. I must get up and walk. Like Paul, I've been knocked down and blinded, but he has given me sight and calls me to live faithfully and purposely before him according to his will and the good works he's prepared for me. I give that individual this morning, if it be your will, the courage and the conviction to trust you and to walk forward in obedience to this calling. Lord, we ask for the encouragement to follow through on these exhortations to love you and serve you. 
we affirm and celebrate the divine origin of the gospel and the divine nature of the gospel as transforming, as calling, and as sustaining. We love you as always, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, sing one last song. Just mercy is more, song 46. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Could remember when love could remember no wrongs we have done, omniscient all no.